the tendon doesn't know the difference between the stress on it, whether it's eccentric, concentric, or iso. The tendon can't tell the difference. It's the muscle that can tell the difference. So really, when we're talking about using isos, my take would be what we've got to consider is what element of neuromuscular function are we trying to target here? Um, because that will allow us to then focus what's appropriate for that person. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Whether it's because of a recent review or whether it's just an industry trend, people are super, super interested in how we train and how we rehabilitate tendons. So we got Seth O'Neill on this episode today, who is who focuses and is an expert in how we train and rehab tendons. So it's a perfect, it's an absolutely perfect fit. And he's a, he's a super good guy, really, really good guy, really articulate, super knowledgeable on this topic. So we dive into how the tendons react to various different stimulus, whether it's a concentric, eccentric, isometric stimulus, and then specifically how we can use or we may be encouraged to use isometrics, various different reasons when it comes to tendons and what the research actually says in them areas so it's a really super it was super interesting episode with seth that if you're interested in rehabbing training tendons you will get so much out of so enjoy this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by hawking dynamics hawking dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system the Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, Head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode is Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction for recovery? Hytro has developed the world's first BFR wearable, unlocking the recovery benefits of BFR to sport athletes. BFR is no longer just for one-on-one physio or rehab. Hytro allows teams to use this safe and scalable sports BFR device post-exercise to dramatically enhance recovery. So whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool to allow BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously, safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hydro.com or email Warren on warren at hydro.com to find out how Hydro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, 
NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at kitmanlabs. So without further ado, over to the episode with Seth. Seth O'Neill, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Cheers. Thanks very much for having me as well, Rob. It's uh, really nice to be here with you and uh, talking to your uh, group of listeners as well. So thanks for the invite. No, thank you very much. Your name's come up a couple of times in various different chats that I've had with people in in the area that you're obviously a specialist in, which is all, everything tendons. And it's interesting, like we like we spoke offline, it's interesting what just becomes big and a, a talking point and grabs people in people's interest. And, and tendons right now seems to be seems to be the one. Well, for, from my point of view, it's it's speed, it's isometrics, and it's tendons. Um, so I think we're going to definitely cover two of them um, off in the next in the next hour. But if anyone doesn't know who you are, Seth, would you mind just giving us a bit of an intro on you? Of course, um, absolutely. So um, I'm a physiotherapist by background. Um, I've been qualified for a good while now, um, so whatever it is, 22 years, 23 years nearly. Um, and I've ended up sort of getting drawn into the tendon world. So it wasn't something I particularly set out to do, but I had a couple of uh, clinical questions that I wanted to answer whilst I was working at um, Leicester University, primarily teaching, and uh, sort of then set out doing a PhD in tendons and uh, answered these questions. So I... Um, so yeah, I ended up getting a bit of a name and going around and doing the other podcast and stuff, which has been really interesting. It wasn't something I ever expected when I set out on that journey. Um, so yeah, I still clinically work. Um, I'm full-time at the university though, but I, I clinically consult for a lot of sports clubs um, across a variety of sports, um, both here and uh, abroad, um, and then still work clinically in my own sort of private practice as well. So um, you're actually in my sort of clinical room now. I'm perched on the edge of the uh, treatment couch doing this talk with you. So yeah, so still see normal patients, but also um, a load of uh, elite guys as well um, and ladies. Yeah. When you go into clubs, obviously not mentioning clubs or people in particular, but what is the what is the biggest question they ask? What is the biggest gap that they're bringing you in to fill? What do we do with this person? Okay. Um, so so it, it's it's normally for a, a clinical consult on an injured player to work out how to return them to play. Um, and that normally happens after they've had a, a failed return is most commonly when I'll be involved because obviously most clubs are perfectly fit and able to manage uh, a normal injury and normal recovery um, but it's where it doesn't go normally um, or where they've had problems in the, the recent sort of past and want to look at it so that'll be about calf injuries or Achilles problems I tend to do the two things because they interlink anyway yeah okay cool let's let's dive in so that the role of the tendon in dynamic movements that we're all familiar with running jumping the things that are important in 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 sport basically I'd just like to get a bit of an insight into the tendon function and actually how they adapt to the things that we've just uh, I've just kind of outlined listed. Okay. 
So I guess that the key thing within uh, in terms of their actual function is they're there to store energy essentially to act as a, an elastic energy storage device to allow us to sort of propulse forwards better and get more output from the muscles. Um, and there's lots of debates of whether they function as a spring or an adaptive spring and, and a variety of other aspects um, when you read the sort of biomechanical literature. Um, but essentially, yeah, they're there to store energy uh, and allow an increase in energy return so we get more propulsion for the same level of muscle contraction action. Um, so for example, when we look at concentric um, measurements on isokinetic, we'll get one times body weight. But as soon as we build in a stretch shorten cycle by doing a concentric eccentric contraction, we're getting around about two and a half times body weight as a force output during the concentric phase. So it dramatically builds up the, the force you can generate from a muscle, um, which obviously transfers to locomotion for us. Um, so yeah, essentially that's its role. And, and when we look at tissue adaptation and what's going on I guess we've got sort of two or, or three different aspects we, we've got the the tissue stiffness itself which will adapt so we've got the material property side so tissue stiffness including modulus um, so Young's modulus often gets called um, but we've also then got the structural adaptations that occur as well and we're perhaps trying to influence those two things in order to bring about performance benefits um, but also from my normal realm clinical benefits um, to actually get the patient or the player to recover from whatever's happened at that stage um, so yeah they're the two big things material and structural properties are the adaptations that happen one thing you mentioned just before we, we hit record was the importance of structure which can polarise opinion based on what you what you said before. Would you mind just giving us a bit of an insight into that polarisation and what you think um, the importance of the structure actually is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think structure is a diversive topic in medicine really at this moment in time and it has filtered through to elite sports and the message for a little while has been that structure is unimportant and we shouldn't be concerned about the structural degradation we might see in tendons um, and it can't be used to guide our interventions or it doesn't correspond to clinical outcome or benefit for the person that we're dealing with. But on the flip side of that, we also know that uh, an athlete who has alterations in their tendon structure is far more at risk of getting symptoms that next season. Um, so it's the largest known risk factor. We're, we're talking about a sevenfold increase in developing symptoms if you've got a um, sort of tendon that's identified as abnormal at the start of the season. So it's, it's really critical to our athletes and it's the biggest risk factor. But then we're told we shouldn't be really bothered about it and we can't change it. And unfortunately, that's actually never been proven, that the lack of clinical changes people term it is actually um, not there in the literature. Um, that was based on a cross-sectional study. So they took people at one time point and then said tendons don't recover, that the, the hole doesn't repair. Um, and it became known as the donut and the hole theory. Uh, and this sort of hole has actually been shown in other studies to repair over a period of time. Um, but that filtered through to sports. And so athletes then have been told they've always got this, they're going to live with it. Um, and they're never really doing anything that tries to target that tissue to change and adapt. And the older studies that we did have that showed a lack of change were, were flawed in their own right because they used imaging techniques where you actually can't quantify 
tissue structure and you weren't able to then go back and measure the change at that particular area so <laughs> flawed methods <laughs> uh, and flawed understanding really uh, and new novel techniques are actually showing a strong association between uh, Achilles um, structure and symptom resolution and that works coming from uh, American group with Karen Silbernagel as the sort of um, PI over there so there's some nice work coming out clearly showing structure does respond and we as clinicians and sort of strength and conditioning and performance um, personnel need to really look at how we can adapt the tissue in order to get the benefits we want for performance and clinical um, resolution. So before we go into how we actually do go about doing that, what what are the list of causes, what list of things that cause changes to the structure? Might be an obvious question, but... So really, you can sort of think about tendinopathy, and it's really important. I think we do sort of all sing from the same hymn sheet with how we get tendinopathy. Um, all of the current um, theories of tendinopathy that have been published, uh, they're all evidence to some degree or not. Um, they all share commonalities, and the commonality is basically loss of tissue homeostasis, much like a stress fracture. We're all relatively comfortable with a stress fracture being overload, um, on the bone with insufficient recovery to repair the tissue and that's exactly what we see in tendons particularly in athletes it's increased stress on the tissue which is exercise our um, activity that we're doing with insufficient repair and the things that influence the repair are previous structural change um, remarkably um, things uh, that influence systemic um, change in the body so adiposity being overweight um, diabetes can have an impact because of the low-grade inflammatory levels you get in the bloodstream both with um, adiposity and um, diabetes um, genetic factors and that's probably one of the bigger markers with athletes um, and we've seen this in sport regularly where there'll be a sibling in the same sport often who's had a rupture or had an Achilles tendon problem and then their other sibling that plays the same sport goes on to get the same sort of issues as well um, and we know which genes they are or, or to a degree which genes they are they, the same genes um, linked to ACL injuries as well so cruciate injuries uh, so collagen 51a which is about your collagen production and then collagen degradation components um, called mmp3 so whilst we can't change them we can alter which genes are switched on in a person uh, so the epigenetics internally which actually is how a lot of our interventions may work as well that we're priming cells to do their job of maintaining tissue health so we take somebody like uh, Mo Farah or um, probably not the best example because obviously the potential <laughs> name change um, that's hit the press this week um, so it's a case of um, we'll use Mo Farah as the example when he's training so much his genes will be switched on so the cells in his tendons will be really primed to repair very fast whereas I don't know how much you run but if i tried to do the same distance he's doing a week i'd be broken Likewise. because my, my cells aren't switched on but if i built up over a very long period of time my structure would adapt but my cells would also repair the tissue quicker and i'd be recovered enough to arguably maybe do 100 miles a week but at my weight that's probably not likely um, so yeah <laughs> so it's, it's really sort of wearing repair factors uh, and all of our risk factors in the literature can be um, sort of put into one of those two camps um, so poor muscle strength will increase the, the stress on the tendon and cause that degradation. And, and we've got good studies that have shown this. There's work from um, the Danish group with Kajar, Langberg and Magnussen showing how the Achilles tendon will get a degradation in the tissue for about 24, 36 hours afterwards. Um, and then there'll be an increased amount of tissue. Um, and that's actually sort of 
been used or misinterpreted by people to say we shouldn't then train within 24 hours uh, and it's not what it says that was a, a long run it was 30 kilometer run so 20 miles um, in athletes where that was their longest training session they would do in a normal week so take it with a pinch of salt it's not saying our athletes aren't able to train daily it's saying that they need some consideration when they do big efforts um, have large sort of um, loads that go through that tendon how much does age affect structure? Yeah, so age is an interesting one because the assumption is always that it's going to be like wear and tear in a knee joint and we get simple degradation as we age. Now, there's very few studies that have really looked at this well and it's part of the work where we've got underway at the moment. Um, but our current understanding, certainly from the work we've done um, where we've looked at older people, is that their structure is still pristine. Their tendon looks normal if they're fit and active. So this is the key challenge again about the activity level. For somebody who is not active and is older, their tendon will deteriorate just like their muscle would deteriorate if we did muscle biopsies or scan the muscle. It's exactly the same for the tendon. So where they're regularly stressing it with golf or walking activities, healthy, pristine looking tendon, much like a, a 20 year old. But where they're not active, then we see degradation. Um, and I guess the other factor with a lot of these studies over aging periods is they don't actually control for ever having had symptoms in tendons and we'll see residual changes sometimes long term because the person's never rehabbed it. The symptoms are settled, but they've never done rehab to ever try and remodel it. So it looks like then the tendon maintains like a, a scar essentially. Um, which to some degree, um, it may simply be that a degree of fibrosis that is akin to scarring in your skin as well. Put an article out on on Sportsman a couple of a couple of weeks ago on on stiffness, and that's obviously a a quality that many practitioners out there are trying to trying to promote. And the the old old age question of how stiff is stiff enough, and then and then we get into muscle stiffness versus tendon stiffness. What's your thought process around around this? Yeah, it's a damn hard question. I looked <laughs> into it a lot during my PhD work, and I don't think we can say what is optimal stiffness. Um, that's totally derived on an individual basis and it will link in with the neural strategy that a person has for moving and it will link in with the contractile outputs that they've got within that kinetic chain during locomotion as well so um, leave length all these other aspects will come into it. optimization so there's a lot of difference there and then it depends on which sport we're talking about as well so sprinters will generally have a stiffer achilles than a endurance runner will um, because there's a total difference in the demands through the tissue so this is part of what we've got to understand is who we're talking about when people mention a study showing x or y they're often on very specific subpopulations of our interest group um so yeah i've only answered part of it there so i can't tell you exactly how stiff is stiff enough um when you get an achilles problem when you get a tendinopathy the tendon becomes more compliant it gets less stiff now that's not the same across all tendinopathies so the patella tendon actually gets more stiff when you get a tendinopathy so that's the, the contrast with it as well so generally for an achilles we want it to be stiffer that's part of what we need to remodel the less stiff it is that when you apply a load it will deform it will strain more and that strain will elongate the tissue essentially and that's where you get breakdown in your cross bonds and then you get the cellular response that sets up um, tendinopathy and that's not what we're trying to do so we are trying to improve the stiffness the material properties um, and the structural properties to do that um, have I answered that Rob I'm not yeah, sure no, I've abs- gone into abs- it all but absolutely I think there's there's probably still some uh, misunderstanding around promoting 
stiffness in the tendon and, yeah. and versus and the muscle, muscle. yeah so yeah. I didn't say that so no, that's all right m- muscle's really key and this is again part of the problem with the studies that show one thing or another some have looked at the muscle tendon unit as a whole and some have looked at it during active contractile states and others have looked at it only in a passive state using different sort of um, tools to measure stiffness and this creates lots of confusion um, so if you want to look at tendon stiffness, the best tool is probably something like um, ultrasonic, um, sh- supersonic, sorry, shear wave elastography. Um, but that's got a lot of user dependency with it as well. Um, so the reliability can be a problem comparing across studies. Um, but I think the general consensus using that tool is that, like I said, Achilles are less stiff. Um, but um, when you've got a problem anyway. So we generally want to make it stiffer, but of course there'll be a, a Goldilocks zone in the middle where it's just stiff enough. It's not too stiff. It's not um, too compliant. Um, there's a happy uh, middle ground. And that's the same, I think, for everything, isn't it? Um, whatever we look at, um, bone health, uh, sort of uh, muscle strength or a function of organs and stuff, there's a, a happy middle zone. Cool. Just, just moving on to something that links very well with this and something that's has become very well linked to, to tendons themselves and tendinopathies is, is isometric training. There's many, there are many practitioners out there who are trying to reduce uh, tendinopathy symptoms pre-training by using iso- various isometrics. We have, again, we spoke very briefly on this beforehand. <laughs> what is the, what is the research on that? What is the evidence to suggest that that does or doesn't work? Okay, so isometrics uh, were originally first sort of published in terms of analgesic response in tendons or presented at a conference in 2013, I think. Um, and then the paper was published sort of about 2015 and it led to a big change in, in sports, um, particularly where isometrics were then rolled out and used for lots of tender complaints with the expectation of benefit. Um, but the original studies were on patella tendon uh, and on a very small number of participants. It was originally published on six people uh, in the British Journal of Sports Med and looked superbly promising. Um, fantastic reductions in pain. But of course, we've got a problem when it's only on six people. We don't know what happens in a larger group. And this population was jumping athletes with three with unilateral pain, three with bilateral pain. Um, and basically from then, we did a study where we looked at Achilles um, and in a, a small sample still, we had 16 people in ours, but they were endurance runners. And we found a, a varied response to using the same type of program, a 45 second hold, five reps at 70% of your maximum voluntary contraction. Um, so we made some people quite significantly worse. Um, and we had some benefit of about one point on a VAS scale, so not clinically relevant. And since then, loads of other people have now um, done larger studies looking at recreating the original patella tendon work. It's been looked at in plantar fascia with Henrik Reel. It's been looked at, um, Sinead Holden did the patella work in Denmark, and Robert Jan de Vos has done some work on Achilles as well. And we've all found the same as sort of my original bit, that there's a diverse response. Some people get some benefit, um, but a lot don't get any benefit or may worsen so if you're going to use it it's not a panacea and there's never been a panacea for any healthcare area we should all realize that and if there's anything looks promising we need to challenge it Um, so yeah it's worthwhile trialing but what you'll tend to find in, in my experience is patients will benefit if we give them an expectation so if you say to them this is going to make you feel better 
they've done it, how much better are you? Then they'll say they're better and score it better. Whereas if you say, well, we don't know if this works, we're going to try it. Has it altered your pain? Then they're often sort of turn around and say no, or like I said, it's maybe made them worse. And in elite sports, um, you'll hear this time and time again now where people are going, well, it works for so-and-so player, but it doesn't work for him or her. And, and so you use it wisely, um, but it's not any miraculous thing. And you'll get the same response with a bit of stretching, like coming down the stairs in the morning for a tendon or with doing isotonic work, or maybe even just doing a bit of um, plyo work, like little pogos or some um, pap work prior to going out on field. That'll give them a warm up response, essentially is what we're talking about. And they feel better for a period of time. Um, so it's not a panacea. It might offer some use for some people, but not anything that we consider um, therapeutic, really, I think, um, currently based on the evidence. And that's across multiple tendons now. The, the, the belief's crumbling as we speak on that. I think so, front. yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it looked really promising, but we, yeah. we just need to weigh up with why there might be a group that respond. And maybe there's a responder group, and what we need to do is just use it as a quick screen. Does this help you? Yes, okay, you get this. But where it doesn't, we don't. And also it is touted as the first step on the rehab ladder and we should use this at the first stage and, and that's not necessary for the vast majority of our clients that we deal with you can go straight in with isotonic work and, and progress from there and isotonic work's got far more relevance to normal muscle function um, excepting for, for running where there is arguably some isometric function of the calf and what we want to do is rehabilitate that neural component um, but again that's different so I'm not anti-isometrics but we'd use it for muscle or, or tendon adaptation not for analgesia okay let's let's go there then with the with the training side of and using isometrics like i said it's probably one of the top three areas that gains most interest okay. on the podcast or whether it be written articles and maybe that's a, a combination probably a perfect storm of of lack of um recent research or you know a, a, a bit of a black hole in terms of more applied information that people can digest and take on board and certain people uh, presenting cool looking exercises really really well and you know um, and pushing the, the benefits of isometric training but from your perspective when it comes to tendons how's best if at all to use isometric training from a to get the performance benefits so I don't think there's any one best exercise when we're looking at interventions for our people. So uh, it's a case of there's no right or wrong exercise. And some people love ISOs, others don't. Um, so it really depends who we're talking about. But they probably have a role to play in um, really looking at getting the tendon fit for the faster contractions that we're going to tolerate. Um, but often when we do rehab, it's done slowly, not under a high rate of force development, which is actually where it's functioning when we're working on field so it's making sure it's appropriate for that um, I think really is the key the tendon doesn't know the difference between the stress on it whether it's eccentric concentric or iso the tendon can't tell the difference it's the muscle that can tell the difference so really when we're talking about using isos my take would be what we've got to consider is what element of neuromuscular function are we trying to target here um, because that will allow us to then focus what's appropriate for that person um, and that's the biggest thing and again the debate I think uh, as you had on your sort of list of questions and has gone round as, as well on social media over the years is about pushing um, or pulling so like a hold or a push sort of iso contraction and 
again, I don't think there's any good evidence of one is superior than another. They do slightly different things. The evidence is pretty reasonable for that, um, suggesting that uh, holding contraction <coughs> really has an increased sort of uh, neural demand, a very specific neural drive that goes with it. So you're more likely to fatigue more quickly and things. So then you go, well, if that's what we want, this person is struggling, we need to build up this neural resilience, say, in the neural drive, maybe that the hold is actually better than doing the, the sort of push. Um, so we can alter it that way. Um, but for me, I'll use very heavy ISOs as a way of controlling the stress very specifically during a rehab phase. So mine's often looking at the rehab rather than necessarily performance elements. Um, but when we're talking about contraction and, and this will come into performance um, and is used relatively widely in track and field, it will be very high maximum voluntary contractions. So MVC is really in that 90% or 80% and above category. And the problem that we've had across um, tendon and calf loading is very few people until the last few years have actually been bothered about quantifying calf strength or plantar flexor strength if we're specific. And then they've not loaded at enough of a threshold. That's essentially the problem. Uh, and what can feel difficult when you're in the gym is actually often well below the actual capacity of that unit when you look at a maximal test. Um, so really, I think we've got to be better at quantifying what the maximal output is and then working at an appropriate threshold. And the evidence at the moment from, I mean, this lovely systematic review come out probably a week ago or two weeks ago with uh, Stephanie Lazaruk, I think it is, uh, and Matt Bourne, so from the Aussie group. Uh, Matt's done a lot more hamstring work, I think, over the years, but um, they've started to now look at sort of tendon work and Dave Opar is part of it. Um, they've basically shown in that review that highest loads seem to be the best for adapting the tendon. Um, and there had been a bit of a move of should we be doing just low loads, um, but it's probably courses for courses. Uh, high loads done infrequently, great, but low loads done more frequently will probably have a similar response like we see in muscles. So there's probably two elements to it, but I, I do sit in the camp at the moment of the high load. So at least really for me, 85% of your MVC work at that threshold and that's what we should utilize to adapt the tendon. And um, this, the reviews a few years back from Bohm uh, and the group um, also showed that high loads seem to be better. Short duration, three to five seconds um, to really adapt the tendon. But obviously then you've got Keith Barr's work suggesting maybe longer loads that allow tissue creep to occur will adapt the tendon as well. But the studies are very small and are relatively animal based. And I know there's a case study in humans, but we see the same benefit with normal loading, normal isotonic work with tendon structure and um, symptom relief. So we need to look at that more and, and see if that's a, a potential goer for adapting the tendon. Um, but yeah, the recent review is relatively short duration, high MVCs, um, and we're getting adaptation. And that's much more akin to what happens in locomotion when we're running. It's a, a very short contact time on the floor. So if anything, we should train at a very high level very, very quickly, and it's on and off. So you move from one leg to the other and alternate it. And often you'll see this done in elite track and field where they'll um, sort of have an inverse leg press they'll um, weight it at two and a half, three times body weight, and you'll have a couple of trainers holding it off the athlete, drop it on, swap legs, literally they're going like this. And, and that's probably a better way um, of really replicating the on-field or on-track demands that go through that region. 
Hope you enjoyed part one with Seth. Part two is set up to have a little chat around calf injuries, the calf complex, how we train it, how we rehab it, and that obviously pulls into uh, into the conversation, specifically the Achilles tendon as well. So really interesting part two coming up with Seth. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Samson Equipment. Samson Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samson provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samson brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samson team brings many years of experience, not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samson underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website, samsonequipment.com or email Andy at Andy at samsonequipment.com. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And now back to the episode with Seth. You mentioned before about isometrics being traditionally the, the kind of the gateway to the rehab process and that's maybe not the case just maybe taking maybe taking an achilles uh, as an example if that's not the case where does it from your perspective where does isometrics fit into that process um so i'll tend to use them when i'm trying to get higher loads later on so initially in the first phases i'll use normally an isotonic contraction so something as simple as a bilateral heel raise or if they're able to, a unilateral heel raise. So, so normally we just assess the person, um, see what they can tolerate, what brings on a little bit of a niggle, um, or is um, challenging from a strength perspective and get them to work at that same threshold. So we're pushing the boundary and gradually adapting. Um, and ISOs are useful if we're struggling because of high irritability. So if we can't get them to do an isotonic program, and these are people really that often can't walk, um, which are rare, um, then we can use an ISO to load it and quantify it whilst we're loading at the same time to then see what threshold they can work at, but also to show them that it's safe and reduce the fear avoidant behavior that they've often got. Um, and that's really important in athletes because when they develop a tendinopathy, they've seen um, sort of high profile cases that are ruptured and they're often fearful of progressing onto a rupture themselves. 
Um, so what we can show is that the resiliency of the tendon, um, quantify it and go, right, well, you can work here. This is all right. And gradually just push it. And athletes like to see performance benefit. And if that performance benefit is strength improvements as we're doing this and tolerance, that's nearly as good as their track time getting better or their sprint times on the field getting better. Um, so I think quantification, again, is, is one of the big things. You mentioned pain there. Is, is pain a, again, using the gateway analogy, I suppose, a, a gateway to progression using pain? Or is that something that we should be moving away from? Yeah, so it, it, it probably is the best we've got. Yeah, okay. it's the best we've got. So normally we'll use um, a, a activity modification sort of program um, and we'll use a pain monitoring model. So it was um, Karen Silbernago who I mentioned earlier that originated some of that concept and certainly from a tendon perspective. Um, but I think originally it was one of her supervisors, Tommy, had it in patella femoral joint stuff back in the 80s or something, I think. Uh, it's a really nice model. So you look at how sore they are afterwards. Um, I don't subscribe to what's often suggested of a five out of ten pain the next morning um, I much look at what happens um, after that period of loading so how sore are they then um, and how long does it last for and how bad does that impact them so does it cause them to limp are they really struggling not necessarily a grade of pain but just a, a life impact and titrate it in relation to what's appropriate for how much they did so playing a full 90 minutes in football and being sore for a day that's fine um, that's not such a bad thing but literally doing sort of 10 skips and then being sore for five hours would be far too much so you've just got to titrate it to the amount they've done and, and help the athlete often understand that process so they can monitor and actually um, control their symptoms better the, the biggest problem we have with people is a lack of control of their own symptoms uh, and really with our athletes the key is to help them understand that and why they have a flare-up and one of the biggest things I see in sport is that we're great at monitoring what's done in the club, but what we don't monitor is what's done outside the club. Um, it's our older athletes that get Achilles problems, so that, that sort of late 20s, 30s or older. Um, and they've often got a family, often got a dog. They're out walking, doing a load of steps outside of their training session, which doesn't get logged and doesn't get monitored. And the flare-ups aren't related to training. The flare-ups are related to what they did out of uh, the club. Uh, and that's the bit that sort of really stands out often. Mm-hmm. So looking at that, just just keeping on the the, the rehab process um, line of questioning, I suppose is the multiple hits during the day. Is that something that you would recommend at certain time points within again using that Achilles as the example? But feel free to use others. Is that something uh, that you would subscribe to? Yeah and no. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, it depends what we're trying to gauge and what we're trying to benefit. Um, so if we're looking at symptomatics uh, patients uh, and we're actually just trying to get um, control of symptoms and to then start to get some tissue adaption, um, I will use low load, uh, regular load, so three times or so a day. And the method of that madness really comes back to what we know about bone loading. Um, so the evidence for bone cells is that if you hop for 45 hops, that saturates the bone cell response. It switches them on. They stay active for a period of time. Any more hops than 45 and it's depleting returns. It doesn't make the cell much more active. And the, the bone cells tend to stay switched on for about five to six hours. Um, and there's good evidence from that, from osteoporotic um, sort of research. Now, bone cells aren't tendon cells, I know, but they're the same cell lineage. They're derived from a fibroblast and, and um, tendon cells respond to load in exactly the same way. We just don't know how long they're active for and how long they take to switch off. Um, 
but it's probably around five or six hours you'd imagine so low loads done with body weight by we mean by low load so single leg heel raises on one leg um, will probably have a similar response and are normally well tolerated but then for an athlete who can go to the gym and is in the club actually you can modify that and use much heavier loads three times a week or something but outside of the club sessions they can use some of this uh, and to put it in context as well, heel raises are about four times body weight through your Achilles tendon. Walking is four times body weight through your tendon. Now, don't get me wrong, a heel raise is much more demanding physically because the muscle demand is much greater. We're going to get a bit of calf fatigue depending on who we are. Um, and it feels much harder than taking 10 steps on the one leg, but it's the same stress through the tendon. Uh, and so it allows us to put some energy through the tendon to switch the cells on, prime them, which is really trying to stoke this fire, stoke the cells so they're switched on and repairing more. And if we've got an inactive person, who I sometimes deal with, then actually that will gradually stoke the fire and the cells will turn on. In an athlete who doesn't do much calf work, which has pretty much been the norm for the last sort of, well, lifetimes for us, most athletes, depending on which sport we're talking about, then actually that still needs a bit of time to switch on. Uh, and certainly in footy, it's taken a long time, I think, to filter through to get calf work across squads. I mean, Phil Glasgow, he had on recently um, with the Irish setup. Phil won't, I'm sure, mind me saying that they've got a, a robustness squad wide program in the provinces now for calf capacity, looking at sort of trying to make their athletes more robust. And um, from my understanding, it's worked really, really well. And UK squads for rugby or football, where they've done that, they've had a reduction anecdotally in their calf injuries, um, so as well as the Achilles stuff. So it makes sense that we want to use this type of process um, to improve our, our performance, really. We'll get on to the calf training and monitoring in a second, but I've got one last kind of, I suppose, summary question, really. So you, your principles when rehabbing tendon injuries, again, we can use patellar tendon and Achilles as, as examples, or maybe one, then little changes that you would make based on the other. Is that all right? Just to kind of, yeah, round, of course, this, round this little section. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. So I guess for, for tendon rehab, um, really, I tend to use like a pyramid when I sort of do talks. I have a little sort of slide with it on and I have education at the bottom uh, and then pain monitoring. So getting the control of load. The most important bit is controlling symptoms first and foremost, because otherwise we're just doing bus cycles. So control of symptoms is reducing the activity of the athlete that we've got. And then what we're doing is isolated muscle tendon unit function. The, the problem if we look at something like walking or running, you can mask the weakness in the muscles that we commonly see have a sort of deficits and cope with running because you're using other muscles because there's enough reserve capacity in the system. The problem though, if your calf muscle is not functioning properly, your tendon will act as a buffer. Uh, and if you Google search tendons acting as a buffer, there's a lovely paper on that. It's titled literally that. So basically, if your muscle is not functioning properly, your tendon will store more energy. That will get more um, strain on it or deform further. That's part of what causes the tissue degradation and breakdown we see. Uh, a tendon that's less stiff has more hysteresis. Um, hysteresis is energy lost in the system, which is heat when it comes to tendons. Uh, and we know heat shock proteins are part of the chemical cascade of tendinopathy. So it's like, well, we've got this tendon that's pliable that's actually getting more heat uh, production in it, which is causing problems with the cells in there. So what we want to do is make sure this muscle is functioning well, and it has to be isolated muscle tendon unit rehab. 
that's the key critical bit that I think all the experts in the world would agree from a tendon perspective. And then we take it up, we use a higher loads, so eccentric loads or heavy ISOs to start to adapt the muscle and tendon unit. Um, the additional thing I add in before we get to stretch shorten cycle and um, sport specific is I actually look at um, muscle oscillations. So there's um, often what you'll see when people are doing it, the calf will shake as they're lowering down, they get a tremor and um, people call them tendon oscillations or force frequency vibrations. Um, and you're just like, what the hell's that? It's basically during an eccentric contraction that the, um, fibers the fast twitch fibers can't coordinate at an appropriate rate um, during the eccentric phase and we tend to see this much more on symptomatic people or people we see it on both legs when they're symptomatic not just the bad leg um, but we don't see it on healthy controls as much and it seems to be a motor strategy they either inherently have or is a result of their tendinopathy that's the bit we don't know chicken or the egg is always the, the debate we have um, but we try and smooth out that contraction because what we think happens is as the muscle eccentrically lengthens and it, it basically stops, that's what the tremor is, and then it will move again and keep doing this jerk. Well, the tendon will get mini stretch shortened cycles every time it stops. And it happens at about 8 to 12 um, hertz. So 8 to 12 sort of uh, of these mini stretch shortened cycles per second, um, which loads of people have shown. Um, and we think that the key with rehab is to make the muscle control and shock absorb for the tendon better. So you don't get these mini stretch shorten cycles, which are ultimately going to be more hysteresis, more load through the tendon. Ultimately, it's going to make it more compliant because it's getting more hits as far as we know. But we need evidence to look at that. That's literally what we need to do next is measure this and see whether it changes with rehab. Um, so that's where we're at with a little bit of data uh, collecting my PhD. So these muscle coordination bits are really important. And I've seen lots of folk who've rehabbed, done all the next bits above this. And when we step back and done that, they then got a better resolution, even though they were doing plyos and heavy work. Um, so yeah, so basically education, we're then looking at sort of um, control of load to reduce symptoms, so the pain monitoring, muscle um, isolated function work, and then we're progressing into um, energy storage, so plyos, um, stretch shorten cycle work. Again, no best exercise, it's just understanding how it progresses. And one of the things I'd suggest you, your listeners have a little look at is some work from Josh Baxter, who's an American um, chap. They did a lovely lab study on tendon loads during a load of different exercises. Um, and it's a really nice paper because it shows how different exercises increase the tendon stress through your Achilles and forms quite a good basis for your rehab choice um, as well as your conditioning choice. Um, so how to maintain peak load through the tendon. And within the same study, they also looked at load rates um, so strain rate basically so that's normally measured in body weights per second so for example with walking is a longer contact time on the floor so you get about 20 body weights per second um, through the tendon and then when you're running it'll be around about 60 body weights per second um, for steady state jogging really we're not talking about sprinting sprinting goes sort of off the, the scale really um, and Craig Purdom's um, work he's got with one of his biomechs over in Australia suggesting that could be around 210, 220 body weights per second with an elite sprinter. Um, and what we've got to condition our tendon to do is withstand three core loads, peak stress, the strain rate um, or the rate of stress through the tendon in body weights per second. And then the other big bit is accumulative load. So, for example, a footy player will cover 11K in a game. Um, well, we need to make sure their tendon's resilient enough to cope with 11K. 
Um, for me, covering 11K, that'll be somewhere like 2.3 million kilos of stress through each tendon. Um, now, that sounds nuts, but an extra kilometer then, which is small fry in training circles, will be sort of 220,000 extra kilos of stress through my tendon on one side. And that's the reason you get a flare up when your accumulative load goes up. And it's often not monitored really tightly with that. So those three core aims really are what we look at with rehab. Um, and ultimately the top of the pinnacle of the pyramid is um, sports specific exercises. So that's where we build in higher cognitive demands. So we're actually sort of having a player moving towards uh, to do an intercept and they've got to decide where to go. And initially the, the coach can control that and say, right, you're going left, you're going right or, or whatever it is, use a static object instead. But then we actually do real world stuff where we're making them move around the player that's moving in their own judgment. And those cognitive demands ensure the player's ready. Um, alongside all the psychosocial stuff. And, and this literally sits in the background of the person that has all the psychosocial components going on at the same time. So we've got a biomech sort of approach, but looking at the person and how we engage with them to do that. So that's the biggest thing. Brilliant. That that Josh Baxter paper on, on uh, tendon loads, there's nothing out there that's similar for patella tendon? Not really that I'm aware of at the moment. Um, there, there is a, a paper that might sort of tie all this together as we go forwards as well that I'm aware of um, so looking at what's out there so there, there should be some further papers coming on this uh, project uh, as well really and there's lots of other papers that have done it Rich Willie's done a lot of work um, with runners as well um, looking at load on overground running versus treadmill running um, as well which is nice um, and um, just trying to think who else has done work on it uh, Jonathan Folland from Love Bros got some nice work as well on it. So there's a lot out there, and what happens as we fatigue or um, during a normal step. Um, I mean, just to sort of go back to the actual stress. I mean, every step you take when you're jogging, according to what's out there, you're going to work at 84% of your maximum capacity for your plantar flexors every single stride. So there's not much reserve there when you're working at such a high level. So people who are below what we consider a norm for that sport or that activity, this is where we get a problem. Uh, and in my data um, in endurance runners from a PhD work, both legs are weak when you've got a tendon problem. It's not just the unilateral side that you've got symptoms on, it's both legs. So you can't use the other limb as a control. That's the important message. You have to use a healthy age, sex, activity match person to control that. And this is good in sports. We can do that, but we can't do it in a general population. Um, and we're never going to have that data set. So we've got a, a large data of 400 elite rugby players this year looking at strength using ISO um, testing. We've got the same in football, 150 players that's going to be coming out soon as well with um, Will Pierce from Hull City, um, that is, doing his master's. And then um, Matt Lee, who's the head of medicine at Saints, is doing a PhD on, on this as well. So we're looking at tendons and strength and how they coincide with injury risk. Um, so we'll have a lot more data to sort of come back with and say, right, this is the key. But at the minute, <laughs> we're sort of uh, going with best guess. Brilliant. If you can hear hammering, I mentioned to you outside, but next door neighbor decided to do his roof at <laughs> two o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. Why not? That's Why right, not? As long as it doesn't rain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just moving on to the, the calf training and, and monitoring, and it, it kind of ties in again with, with Phil's episode a couple of weeks ago. He, he mentioned that they seem to kind of have a grasp on the hamstrings, but more and more the calf kind of seems to be taking its taking its place. Is that something that you're seeing across the sports that you work with as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been working with um, 
fill on this as well um, and hopefully we'll have a little paper coming out soon about this but basically in, in rugby when you look at the um, prem um, data that you have in England um, calf injuries are um, either top or second with hammies they, they alternate depending on what we're looking at but they're the third um, biggest cause of time loss um, in, in um, rugby full stop um, so which is pretty huge and it's the same for the Irish data set as well and then you've got data from Barcelona showing that calf injuries have been on the rise over the last sort of nine seasons or so um, injuries are getting greater and hammies have either stayed stable or dropped a bit so we do have a better grasp I think in hammies we know what we're doing and it's only really the last five years people have started to wake up on the calf because it was always considered a, a walk-off injury in the, the old day of a lot of the managers who are managing footy now, even though some of them have retired because of calf problems, um, interestingly. Um, so yeah, so it's a, a definite issue in sports. Um, we don't have huge data in track and field. Um, looking at that, um, we've got... I think where else we've got data the Aussie rules data from Brady Green's lovely on, on calf injuries as well showing how big a problem it is and when injuries occur which can give us insight into how we should rehab as well um, so things like uh, what is it accelerations are the biggest um, sort of uh, single um, cause really of injuries um, and often people think excels are about hammies um, or quads that they're not the calf does far more during an acceleration there's a lovely paper paper out from uh, i think it was pandy recently on excels coming out of sprint blocks uh, and the soleus as an example we're doing somewhere between eight and ten times body weight as you're coming out of a block um, for the first seventh 19th step was just the arbitrary values they looked at it works phenomenally hard hams and quads are nowhere near um, iliopsoas hip flexors work about eight times body weight but obviously total different function here so for acceleratory force and vertical force the, the soleus particularly is the real powerhouse which I think is the bit that people have missed in the past um, gastroc for sprinting out of the blocks will be four to six times body weight so it does a lot more than it does during normal running um, change of direction is critical um, it does a huge amount for change of direction that the soleus does and controls tibial um, posterior translation so basically can reduce your risk of acl injuries is the theory so normally when you get an acl injury your, your tibia is shifted forwards because your quads have pulled at the front and pulled it that way whereas your hamstrings would normally pull it back uh, and the soleus can function at about 30 percent of the capacity of your hamstrings um, at posterior translation um, so it, it seems to have a role there in stabilizing the knee as well um, and cutting maneuvers like i said why do you think there has been this rise of calf injuries when hammies have plateaued and, and slightly decreased just lack of attention increasing yeah. demands lack of attention we were discussing this with uh, phil and and uh, nicole who's a data analyst done a lot of hamstring work um, over with phil as well um yeah we don't know it's the truth of it we're, we're speculating um the game's changed um in football and rugby um the, the players are bigger they're faster than they've ever been um the actual game is much faster in both those sports which is where we've got better data sets um and generally speaking i think s and c um, coaches will work on quads and hams a lot and do a lot of general conditioning but the calf hasn't had a focus until like we said probably five years ago and it's um probably then only been with some of the vocal stuff we've had in terms of conference talks sort of shouting out about what the calf does the data's been there it's been published by other people but it's finally sort of been pulled together and sort of identified as how much it does um yeah 
and we've come up with a way of actually quantifying it and, and sort of measuring that in the, the clinic quickly and stuff, which helps as well, I think. So because before that, it was all isokinetics, which let's face it, we don't have access to for most people. It takes a long period of time. And um, if you ever use it a lot, you'll break the unit. We've broken ours numerous times and had to have um, engineered pieces developed for it um, because they're not built to withstand the forces you'll get with uh, sort of calf testing repeatedly. So, yeah. So how would, for, for um, rugby and football, for example, or, or one or the other based on your experiences, how would you, so for, for an S&C coach, performance coach, that's, well, yeah, I probably have neglected the, the calf in, in my program. How, where, what would your, the first place you would start when attacking that particular area for, for a performance benefit? So and the, injury reduction, of course. Yeah, so the performance benefit we might get, actually, which I'll just flag up, we don't have data yet, so we're going to correlate the um, sprint data in football and rugby with the, the, the data set we've got. But in cricket, it's been shown that your calf strength clearly links to your um, run speed when you're actually in. Um, so there is a relationship with that sprint speed. And um, some of the New Zealand uh, rugby data from Kim Herbert Lozier is showing a, a strong correlation as well with calf capacity and um, 10 meter sprints, I think it was, that she's got. Um, so it looks really nice and, and does seem to be um, relevant. Um, <laughs> so that's the important bit first. Um, so your question was about how we should introduce it. And I guess your decision is, do you try and identify your higher risk players or do you just go squad wide? Uh, and the argument I think for injury prevention is you should probably go squad wide, um, which is sort of, I think, how Ireland uh, rugby's really done it with Phil, that actually we probably just want to introduce it to everybody's S&C programme. It's a part of the normal um, work we do. Do you go endurance or do you go heavy? Um, my preference is, is heavy. I like doing six rep max or, or eight rep max. I'm not one to spend time in the gym uh, sort of slogging away. And if you do a lot of endurance work, you're going to introduce a lot of DOMS uh, and you can also lead to a lot of fatigue for the next day, which is ultimately then um, pretty damaging as well. Um, so you need to test it. You need to get a ballpark. And I think you need to then look at introducing appropriate weighting. So standing is sufficient. It doesn't need to be specialist machines, um, but it needs to be really for rugby and football and track and field approaching 50% of their body weight as an external load on top of their body weight already and doing single leg. Um, it's that high because if they're generating twice body weight as an average, um, when we do the testing, or you load them up with 15 kilos or something, it's not going to cut the mustard. And that's generally what we see is it's just insufficient loads. It feels hard to the person, but they can do a lot more when you test them. Um, alternating the positions you're doing it in is also critical to stress. Not so much the muscle so much, but the different fascicles of the tendon. Um, and going into, we often term it dirty positions. And it was Craig Purdom who first suggested this really, that um, what we do is replicate on-field demands. Um, if you look at sort of players on field running and they do a cutting task, they can be huge amounts of dorsiflexure and massive pronation angles and the knee and hip in all sorts of different positions that will stress the, the calf and the Achilles totally differently. And we're great at rehabbing in the gym, but what we miss is those dirty positions that the player goes into on field, don't prepare them for it, and then just boot them back out on field and wonder why we have a relapse. And that's, again, uh, one of the common problems I come across. 
Um, so yeah, we've got to make sure that it's squad wide. It's 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 super heavy, really, in comparison to often what we might uh, have thought. And we're building that capacity up and helping the players buy in. I think a lot of it can be around education of what the calf does during locomotion to the playing cohort. Because when I sit them down and show them that when we're doing a consort, they're like, oh yeah, it's really important, isn't it? It's like, yeah, <laughs> and they'll, they'll do it. And, it. and it's just immediate buy-in. And they've heard that message often from the squads. But it's just having an external always helps to just hammer the message home. Um, and that, that's the thing, I think. And your examples there were just simple a calf raise, something calf raise? Yeah, I don't think it needs to be anything fancy. You can use a leg press to do it. You can use, obviously, Smith machines and stuff. You can use seated calf raises, but it just needs to be properly at the top end of what they can cope with. Um, you really need to work towards that. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it needs anything specialist. It just needs to be done hard um, and, and not huge. Like, literally, we're talking sort of the equivalent of two to five minutes here. It, we're not talking like this is a 20-minute leg program. This is just a beast on it. Um, alternate it with some other sets on something else if you want, but just hit it and make it feel like it's had a decent workout. You're trying to get a muscle pump. Um, you could do backward chaining, walking, like walking on hills, on treadmills, uphill sort of thing to, to work the calf and get some coordinatory bits. Um, but often what we'll tend to do is just a heel raise with a stop-start contraction. Um, so instead of a smooth rep where they're working at their preferred cadence, we'll make them stop and then go back up come down a bit further, go back up to like 25% and all the way down. And it's just a bigger neural drive. It's a challenge away from their preferred motor sort of drive that they've got. And that's what we're trying to do. And eccentric focus, because that's where the injuries happen. Whether we look at ruptures, whether we look at calf injuries, it's an eccentric load. So ISOs are good, but it's eccentric parts, which we can argue whether the muscle is working isometrically when they get an appearance of an eccentric function, but there should be some give in the muscle as far as we think that will actually do the shock absorbing part. It's not just a, a rock hard muscle that stays totally isometric during these step backs that often sort of coincide with the player getting injured. Um, David Beckham sort of rupturing his uh, Achilles. Um, if you Google that one on, and when he's playing for LA Galaxy, it's, it's a clear sort of mechanism. And we've done some work around that mechanism and we'd also rehab the mechanism of injury. So step backs, push backs, lands and push offs. They're really important for our athletes for calf and Achilles because that's when they generally get injured. Brilliant. So much information. I mean, we could, Sorry. I, I'm pretty, no, 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 it's brilliant. It's so good. Thank you, Seth. It's, it's been brilliant. But I'm just going to round up there and just say, firstly, thank you very much. Secondly, if anyone wants to dive into your work, whether it's previous or what's what's coming up with the various projects that you've got going on, where's the best place for people to keep up to date with you? Um, probably don't really have anything as such. Um, Twitter's probably the thing I'm most active on. I've been a bit less active over the last few years just with work as it's been, but um, Twitter's probably the best thing. So it's just at um, Seth um, O'Neill, um, but I think the O is a zero instead, so it throws everybody off. Um, yeah. I've got got this sort of uh, infamous title of Achilles tendons, uh, I think is my actual sort of uh, name. But um, just to put it out there, the only reason I had that name was I was trying to recruit people for our research years ago. And somebody said, Twitter's great. Uh, and Achilles tendinopathy had already gone. And it was just uh, people would search it and find it. Um, it wasn't any big sort of uh, ego on my part. It was actually just trying to recruit people for research purposes. So yeah, so that's probably the best. 
Cool. And have you got a research gate? Research, research gate profile I have, but I tend not okay. to use it. So there's loads of okay, messages cool. on there I don't respond to, but um, <laughs> I, I'll try and do better in the future. Yeah. Um, university email is probably the easiest thing as well, which you can just find by doing a search for me, I'm sure. Um, and I do respond a bit more to that. Um, but uh, yeah, some, sometimes it'll go a little while. So if I don't respond, do chase me up. I'm always happy for a chase. <laughs> so yeah. No, great. Thank you, Seth. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I know it's a, a topic that will will go down really well because there's so many questions um, that, that, will, that will come from it. And I, and I think well, we had uh, Steph do a little review of her okay, cool. review of her review uh, a few weeks ago. So um, hopefully that will, will tie in nicely with this. But thank you very much again. Look forward to uh, getting this out there and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Cool. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Rob. And uh, thanks very much for the invite to come and do it. So it's My great. pleasure. Cheers. Cheers, sir. Cheers, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 408 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Seth for coming on this episode, lining it up last minute, getting him on the podcast, diving super deep onto this topic of tendons. And there's so much information in that last hour, as I'm sure you'll agree. A big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Hytro, Kitman Labs, Samsung Equipment and Play for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in, and I look forward to chatting to you next time.